0: Welcome to Brands in Action, the podcast that asks the questions every brand should be asking. Today, we welcome Scott Philbrook, co-creator and co-host of the podcast Astonishing Legends. Scott was born near Death Valley, California, where his dad worked as a military engineer at China Lake Naval Base. After graduating from UNC Greensboro with a communications degree, he moved with his fiance to Los Angeles, where he found work as a tape runner, delivering tapes around Hollywood for a high-profile commercial and music video post-production facility. Eventually, he worked his way up to being an editor and spent 17 years editing commercials and music videos, working in Los Angeles and New York City. When their son was born, he left his work to be a full-time stay-at-home dad for a few years until his son got old enough to start attending school. Ready to go back to work and having a lifelong fascination with the strange and unusual, he reached out to his longtime close friend, Forrest Burgess, and together they hatched the idea to start Astonishing Legends. In the seven years since the podcast began, Scott and Forrest have published over 220 episodes and have barely scratched the surface of the unknown, for which they have an undying curiosity.
1: Welcome to the show, Scott. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That made me sound really good.
0: (laughs) I left some stuff out. (laughs) It is really great to have you. I am a huge fan of your podcast. You and I knew each other before the podcast, but the podcast kind of brought us together, back together a little bit. Yes, it did. Uh, Yeah, I guess we go way back. We've worked together as sort of production house and creative director before, so you were always like one of the best. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Amazing. So tell our listeners a little bit about Astonishing Legends, about what the podcast is about.
1: When we started it, when Forrest and I started it, Forrest being my co-host, there were a few paranormal shows in the podcasting realm, but not a ton, and also... Generating income from podcasting was still very much an unknown. So what we wanted to do was we were fans of some other shows that were out there, but we felt like the ones that were already succeeding were maybe taking the genre a little too seriously. There's this Mm -hmm. vibe that paranormal stuff has had over the years especially in the 70s and 80s and then it evolved a little further in the 90s but still it was just dark and serious and kind of (laughs) cheesy graphics and all that kind of and we we wanted to take it into a more conversational realm but we also we got frustrated listening to shows that were interviewing or talking about something unusual that happened and and the questions never getting asked that we would ask if we could be there or or be interviewing that person so that was part of the reason we started the show and then uh, from a content standpoint Our inspiration was essentially the Unsolved Mysteries format, or if people are old enough to remember, In Search Of. Mm -hmm. We like the idea of bouncing around from topic to topic within the niche of the paranormal, which means, of course, some shows we do, people are not into. Some people only want to hear about UFOs. Some people only want to hear about Bigfoot. Uh, Some people, it's an anathema to them to hear about something from one category or the other. But we found that that's done well for us is uh, just keeping it different and mixing it up
0: it's interesting because paranormal is, it's not everything. You guys have done a ton of work around Amelia Earhart, for instance. I mean, a lot of, a lot of hours of podcasts and you've revisited that a few times and that's not paranormal. It's an astonishing legend. You know, it's kind of what happened to this incredibly famous media personality, you know, at the time.
1: Yeah, that's true. And we do love that stuff. It's still, that is essentially an unsolved mystery. And that is part of what we like about that. And it's funny, we continue to be involved in that story. It's unusual because sometimes these stories go to a place where we can't do any updates on them, maybe indefinitely, or maybe eventually there will be. But there's things going on behind the scenes that are really fascinating and we want to talk about, but we can't because other people have NDAs or they've made deals with documentary companies or whatever. So it seems like we've left something alone, and it's like we haven't left it alone. We just don't have permission to talk about it right now.
0: Interesting. And you can't even talk about not being able to talk. about Exactly. (laughs) It's crazy. One of the things that I really love about the podcast, and I used to listen to Coast to Coast as a kind of goof, you know, I thought it was really fun. What frustrated me about Coast to Coast, especially the later version of it was they seemed to believe everything and probably out of respect for the guest, you know, they'd have a guest come on and they're not going to call you a crank, but you know, they would seemingly believe everything. And you guys don't, you guys come from a skeptical but open place.
1: Yeah. Forrest and I are, we have, our backgrounds are a little different on that. And my attitude was more skeptical when we started than it is now, just based on personal experiences that happened along the way. But I'm, I still believe in hoaxes and that people make things up. And cause we've also seen urban legends or astonishing legends that have evolved from political feuds where things got sideways and people started calling each other names in in the press in the early days of the press. And then, you know, poof, you have the Jersey devil. You can actually track that story. Yeah. But as Forrest will tell you, there's still some, people saw some weird stuff in the Pine Barrens and there's still that seed. We feel like there's always a seed of something there. It seems to be based on the things that we've covered rare that if something's become big enough for us to feature it on our show, I mean, we do do obscure stuff from time to time, But usually there's some reason, something strange did happen at the heart of it. And there's a question of, of investigating that and trying to see if you can get back to what that strange thing was. Like the Pied Piper of Hamlin, that's one of my favorites. Right.
0: Incredible episode.
1: Yeah. It's so long ago, it's hard to get down to the specifics of it, but it's ingrained in that culture that a bunch of kids disappeared. So there's something going on there. What is the reason behind it? Is it just folklore, the the stories that evolved? I mean, it could have been as simple as um, a disease or something that killed a bunch of children at the same time. But right. it's investigating that that makes it interesting for us.
0: Having been an early adopter to the podcast, and I've given you this opinion before, it really started out as kind of Mulder and Scully, like the. And this might not be fair. This is my opinion, but I always thought Forrest was kind of a believer. And you were always the skeptic and you you played off each other. And, and Forrest has skeptical moments and you have believing moments. So I'm not, it's not that clean, but you've kind of become Mulder and Mulder <laughs> where you've had some experiences that your audience has gone with you, I think on, and we've watched, I think a little bit of you change your, your point of view towards some of these things. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I still try to approach everything from an investigative point of view and say, all right, well, let's look at what happened here. There's situations where we've covered some stories and you can't be sure, but once you look at things over and over and over, you start to identify patterns. Like For example, I think some people that have UFO experiences or, or even abductee experiences, I think in a lot of cases, those experiences, there might be something real that happened, but mm-hmm. then moving forward, it's just a one-time thing, but they're right. still caught up in sharing their experience or wanting people to believe them that from after the first event, they start fabricating other things. Right. And it muddies the water. Nothing is cut and dried when it comes to that kind of stuff. So again, it's these, these positions where people also are doing obvious hoaxes or later they come out and say, look, that was a hoax. Right. And my hat's off to a lot of them. We had a, a gentleman on, Spiros, uh, who talked about the alien autopsy film that he made. And it, right. it's an amazing hoax. He, he pulled it off. And once he started pulling the threads on it, though, you could see... He was like, people just didn't want to see the things that proved that it wasn't real. He wanted credit for it. He wanted
0: credit for this amazing special effect that I think even Stan Winston was
1: like, wow, that was incredible. Yes, exactly. And it was pretty amazing what he did with that. So that that stuff happens. But other times, too, you talk to these eyewitnesses, and it's just hard to imagine— that they're making it up. It's clear that they right. believe what they're telling you. Now, whether right. or not they might be a little mentally ill or something, or, yeah. or they've mistook something like a bear with mange for a chupacabra or whatever. It's clear when you're talking to that person that they believe it, like Bob Gimlin, yeah. who I've spoke to and interviewed personally about the Patterson Gimlin film, which is the most famous Bigfoot. It's the Abraham Zapruder yeah. of Bigfoot movies. When you meet Bob, you're just like, no, he believes that what he saw that day that he filmed in 1967 that everyone has seen, the most famous yeah. profile yeah. of Bigfoot there is, he's 100% sure that that was something real. And yeah. so yeah. when I came away from that when I was like, well, you know, I thought this was a guy in a suit. You know, we yeah. did this really long multiparter on it. By the end of it, I didn't think that anymore. Or I at least thought that he was not in on it. If there was a hoax, I think he was not in on it, which – I thought in itself was bold because he had a loaded weapon and was a crack shot. So if you're going to hoax that guy, you are literally taking your life in your hands
0: it would have meant somebody went out into the middle of nowhere without him knowing getting in front of him right. and hoaxing him and that said like it's still really hard for me you know to go like it's got to be a hoax it has to be you know what i mean right it's very difficult to just kind of open your mind and go yeah that's real i it's hard for me anyway
1: well we've talked about this on the show before too it's called the need for cognitive closure yep. and some folks have to have that and and there's varying degrees to how you get to it. It Forrest used to say something and I always give him credit for this, but he says he stole it from somebody else, but he he he'll finish the show and be like live with the question. But other people are <laughs> yeah. like, "No, I don't want to live with the question. Yeah. I know they're going to do something else next week or the week after. I have to decide how I feel about this and yeah. my decision is it's not real because these things can't be real. It's right. not even about what you've heard in the show. Right. And we get emails all the time from listeners who are like, "Please there's no yeah. way. And then invariably, they put forth some theory of the mistaken identity or the mistaken concept that is crazier than what the actual personal experiencer was claiming.
0: I'm going to guess, too, that they, they probably put forward theories that you refute in the podcast itself.
1: Yeah, that happens as well. It's like, oh, yeah. look, we talked to those people. We talked to the X, Y, and Z. We know that this wasn't that. And so it's interesting. We're going to talk more about the podcast, but I,
0: you know, ultimately this is a marketing podcast. And one of the things that I am really fascinated with is how you came out of nowhere and built this really successful, incredible brand of a podcast. And I wanted to talk to you sort of about two things. One is talk about Astonishing Legends as a brand, and the other is just kind of talk to you how you built this audience and how you went about about building it. Because every agency I know, every uh, client I know, everyone's thinking they need a podcast and or should have a podcast, and there are probably some
1: lessons here. Do you even think of Astonishing Legends as a brand? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we sort of did that from the jump, but you mentioned in my bio, my background, I just spent literally decades in rooms with some of the biggest names in advertising there were working for a long time, you right. know, Wyden Kennedy and BBDO and every, you know, IPG and all these and Donnie Deutsch. I used to talk to him regularly when I was doing yeah. Mitsubishi commercials. I'm talking to everybody. And along the way I learned about branding. I did not know anything about it when I got into post-production for advertising. And, you know, you can only sit in the chair so much with a client behind you having either a discussion with their peers or on the phone or with their client and you start picking things up. Yeah, you're going to absorb. Yeah, and so there was definitely a desire to have a control over our brand, and so from the jump, you know, one of the the first things we did was hire a decent graphic artist to come up with a logo for us. Yeah, and it's funny, the components of our logo, especially now, are are cliche, especially for a podcast about the paranormal. It's a skull. It's not a very original idea. And it was our idea. It was not the graphic art. We told him what to do. But it's like a skull with a microphone and a headset. And there's no shortage of even other shows that are friends of ours that have something similar. Yeah. But after we got into it, we started to have so much equity in that particular identity that I think if we had changed it, it actually would have made some of our listeners angry. Yeah. It's a, it's a character, right? Yeah. It's a character, Astonishing Al, you know, being A-L for Astonishing right. Legends, and it was part of the show for a while. And when we got to a point where we wanted to change it and we actually updated, we hired a different artist later. Um, not that we were unhappy with the first one. We are just like, we want to stay fresh. So after about five years, we looked at, at changing it. And I'm happy with the change because I felt like it's easier to read as a postage stamp in an, in an iTunes you know, podcasting app or whatever. You can understand it a little easier. But there were people that missed the old one. It's definitely mm-hmm. like a cleaner, more graphical, iconic thing now than it was before. It was maybe a little more punk. So sometimes I wonder, it's like, oh, did we take it in the wrong direction? Even though I'm happy with both of them. Yeah. But in terms of managing our brand, yeah, that's something that we thought a lot about. And then the other part of our brand is is being apolitical, Right. which was very hard to do over the past seven years.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah,
1: And it's not that Forrest and I don't have political opinions. We just felt like our our show is escapism, and it's not what it's about. It's about these mysteries, and you come there to get away from that because you were swimming in it everywhere else with regard to the media over the past several years. So we tried to keep it apolitical also to keep our reach broader. That was part of the brand. The other part of it is really high production value, being as clean and perfect as we can be in terms of our gear and our edits and- the final mix and what it sounds like. Cause this was all stuff that he was in post-production too. We were both steeped right. in that. Yeah. You have a, you have a bar that you're going to uphold. Right. There's a lot of shows out there. And and to your point, when we started, there was, I think on the pod on the uh, iTunes index, there was 250,000 podcasts. Right. I don't know what percentage of those were active at that time, but there was 250,000. There are now 2 million. 2 yeah. It's million. incredible. Yeah. Yep. I remember when it was 350, I remember when it was 500, I remember when it was 750, when it was a million, and now it's 2 million, which I just heard the other day from uh, Jupiter Research, I think it was. And it's just unbelievable. And I read an article, I think last year, that suggested that on a study in um, Apple Podcasts, which is now, because you know they broke that out from the iTunes app, so now that's a standalone app. Right. For those shows, I think only 40% of them were considered active, meaning that they had a new episode out within the past six months
0: and that doesn't even include internet radio right? right right which is a whole other thing i mean the the um the ocean is incredibly deep now wide and deep yeah and honestly mostly it's like everything 95% of everything is bad you know and then there's just this really great content out there. And I will say, you're not the first guest that sounds better than me, but you're, you're one of the guests that sounds better than my, my audience. So.
1: <laughs> you know, I worked for the, you know, the company that is in my bio is like the high profile, whatever this company mm-hmm. I started out with out in LA were three editors who were tape ops for a, an old production company called Propaganda Films. Sure. Propaganda was the place to be back in the day with commercials and music. And it was founded, you know, by David Fincher, Michael Bay, yep. Dom Sinna, and these other really high powered directors. So these guys that were their tape operators went and opened their own company. And that was where my first job was. And the the standards were high. You made a mistake, you were fired. Period. You yep. know, you're working long hours all night long. And it's funny, I was thinking too about my bio talks about being a tape runner. It's just a job that doesn't exist anymore because all assets are digital now. You don't have to right. Physically take things anywhere, which is which is crazy. And I loved being a runner because I got to drive all around Hollywood. And, yeah. And I had my Motorola brick phone.
0: It's amazing to think about uh, you were the internet, right? I yeah.
1: mean,
0: <laughs> you were internet, email. You were the one running stuff it. around.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, you know, but we've been through a lot of changes. I, you know, I was, I came up on Avid Media Composer or whatever, and that was version three, which I think now it's at 12 or 13. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't have to use it much anymore. And most people have migrated to Premiere, oddly, uh, which used to stink, but now everybody loves Adobe Premiere coming back around to the the brand question, for me, our brand and what it is, I learned about how to make a brand the way our brand is by being in constant fear of losing my job
0: <laughs> when I was younger. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's amazing.
1: Yeah. How do you handle a guest with terrible audio? It's funny, you know, because you use the same editor we do. Correct. Yeah. Sarah Voorhees-Wendell. She is a genius. Her bar is as high, if not higher than ours. She's incredibly fast and incredibly talented. And when we get bad audio, I just make her fix it. (laughs) No, but she will. She will fix it. But if it's real bad, we'll try to do something about it. We've had some serious situations. It doesn't always happen. The software is getting better now, including the platform you and I are using right now. That's one of the best ones out there. Yeah. Because it eliminates the dangers of the connection between the computers. Right. The ones where it's actually recording what's being sent over the internet, that's always going to be dicey because people just don't have good internet. You don't know where they are. And so that's a problem. Uh, in other cases, you know, Sarah works her magic with, you know, sophisticated plugins and pro tools that can fix a lot of things. And sometimes we'll think it's going to be really bad and we don't really get a lot of complaints about it. We'll get more complaints about a thick accent than we do yeah. bad audio.
0: People have become conditioned a little bit to some bad audio. And and I, I think part of it's COVID. You know, yeah, has yeah. made like we're all on Zooms all day, and the audio most people don't have great audio, so maybe that's part of it. I, I describe Sarah as I I can't tell you how many times I say to her, like I don't know how you perform such sorcery because she makes me articulate. You know, she yes. makes me. As articulate as I'm going to be, because I, I say um a lot, and no one ever hears them.
1: Um. Honestly, I don't know. I mean, I think Forrest and I have gotten better, but we both have our peccadillos and things that I'm sure annoy her to no end. And <laughs> frankly, I'm surprised she hasn't fired us, because it's got to be frustrating sometimes, especially when we're really tired and we're doling out. We're talking about Ireland in the 1500s, right. and we have all this data to get out, and it's two in the morning because we procrastinated, and it's got to be in her lap by the next day. And we're just like stumbling through this stuff. And she always fixes it. And again, I always expect to get the edit back with a note that says, this is the last one I'm doing.
0: (laughs) It's amazing. Well, she hasn't yet. She would do do the same thing to me. So, (laughs) uh, you know, getting back to the branding. So you have iconography. You know, we always think of a brand as a set of behaviors based on a belief system or a set of values. And do you have any kind of articulation that you created when you started this thing? Do you have like,
1: here's what we are? Does that live as a set of words? It doesn't really live as a set of words. I mean, it sort of did right when we started out, we sat down and did that thing that you would do. Yeah. Like if you're a writer and you're trying to do a character Bible, like, what are we? What's right. our bio? We did do that early on. And we spent a good couple of years trying to figure out if a topic seemed right for the show. And I remember Forrest and I talking about it. I was like, I don't know if this is right for Astonishing Legends. And yeah. it took a while to suss that out and then it just evolved to a point where like we just know now when we're when we're discussing what's going to be next we know whether or not it's going to fit but we also keep the door open and he's very much interested in this and i am as well Is we keep the door open to just like if it's interesting to us we're going to do it if it doesn't have a paranormal component so what and even true crime you know which is obviously huge and not something that we got into but every now and then we'll do a story that essentially is true crime like the Velisca axe murders yep that's basically a true crime story, but it is also an unsolved mystery because they never caught the whoever was doing that, and they, all they have is a theory: was that it was a guy that was riding trains, you know, in the right. early 1800s, I think it was. But right. so we'll do that because it's fascinating to think of these horrible crimes that somebody just got away with, and so that to us would be interesting in getting into the historical components of it, and it's also scary, even though it's not necessarily paranormal. Yeah, it's more about how we cover than what we cover. Do you have places you won't go? yeah we do it's we we do avoid some more controversial things like you know Joe Rogan will jump on some of that stuff, and he's obviously doing way better than us. you know Spotify paid him a hundred million <laughs> to go over there. but I don't really like getting into areas where it's very easy for the listener to say, This is cut and dried. Mental illness. That's not this. Right. We don't get into this. That's why we always cover that. When we cover like a possession story or something like that, we try to really look at all the possible angles, from the mundane to the fringe. But there's some things that are controversial, and also, especially in today's climate, there's a lot of really kind of radical conspiratorial stuff out there. And we don't really do conspiracies. But for that, like you would we, never,
0: you would never go with QAnon.
1: No, no, just yeah. not going to talk about that. I mean, for the most part, I don't. Care about it, but also it's just it's so far out of left field. And let the Joe Rogans of the world cover that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean we we've always talked about JFK. It's a fascinating story, but if we do cover it, our take would be based on one book that Forrest and I both found particularly fascinating and plausible. The book was kind of a bestseller, but it's not a theory that you hear all that much. And there is a little bit of conspiracy in it, but the conspiracy is more of a cover up of ineptitude rather Mm. than like some wide ranging attempt to change history it's more like oops oh well that's not good this doesn't look good so we can't tell people that was it people now. were hammered the night before <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like that's what they say about Amelia and
0: yeah. her navigator amazing do you have a tone of voice that you would articulate of of how you approach things I, yeah. I my brewery Ponysaurus, our our tone of voice is uh willfully stupid possibly brilliant and right. everything we everything we
1: do is kind of goofy and weird and fun, but it, go, it makes you go, hmm, <laughs> you have to kind of think about it, you know? Yeah, but see, that's why you're who you are. You are so good at this stuff. You are so much better at it. And we, if, if I was you, I would have come out of the gate better formed as a brand. Where we got to was more of an evolution of what we felt like worked and didn't work because we never had a formal education in... Beyond like I said, sitting in edit rooms with people and overhearing conversations or being told to do something. Yeah. But I would say that the show does have a tone. I don't know that we can articulate what it is, but we know when it's not right, if right. that makes sense.
0: To me, it's something around openly skeptical, but skeptically open, you know? You guys really do Are
1: you gonna charge me for that? Can I No, that? it's all yours, man. <laughs> but you guys you guys really
0: do attack everything down to the rafters. Like you you pull the the box apart and you look into it and go. Here's all the possibilities here. And sometimes you say, here's what we think happened. And sometimes you say, we don't know what happened, you know? Yeah, that's right. Uh, An episode that, uh, a series, I should say, because it's more than one episode that I would recommend everybody go listen to is The Summerton Man, which is incredible. It's incredible. And I think it's probably six hours of content when you put all the shows together.
1: It's a lot. It's funny you should mention that because literally next week in three or four days, Forrest is recording... He'll be in an episode of History's Greatest Mysteries about it. Hmm. Uh, he Reached out to us and wanted uh, wanted us to come on. And he's there in LA. So and he's in LA. So he's he's actually gearing up for that as we speak to go on that about yeah. that topic. But yeah, that's another one that's not paranormal, really. But it's a really fascinating mystery, and it trips into the um, into the true crime area.
0: And it's unsolved. It is completely unsolved.
1: It is yes, to date unsolved. Although they did just exhume him. Finally, oh, they finally did. Yes, but uh, the DNA information probably won't be around until Q1 or Q2 of 2022. There'll be uh, DNA feedback there.
0: Should we let the audience in on this or make them go listen to it? I think they
1: should enjoy it. (laughs) I think go listen to
0: the Summerton Man episode. Yeah, the
1: story is still fascinating no matter where it's at right now.
0: It is, it's incredible. Let's now go into kind of part two, which was how have you built an audience? You've really built a really strong fan base that I, I think love you. It goes beyond, I, th- I think, a lot of podcasts. I have podcasts I listen to. I, I can't wait for them. I love them. But I, I, I sense a, a real fan base.
1: We're not really sure how that happened. It's very organic. The audience has grown mostly by word of mouth, which is what even just at Podcast Movement in 2021, which we did go to in Nashville just a few months ago, we only go to this Podcast Movement probably every other year or so just because it's travel and it's ex- expensive or whatever. But they, you don't ever want to miss the Edison Research guys because they always have their ear to the ground and he said you know if your your show it has to be easy for people to tell others about your show and where to find you and right. that's still the case now we recently have started doing some marketing and we're looking into that more because We've had slow and steady growth since we started, but it does seem we may have reached the edge of all the people who would be looking for a show like us. And right now, our challenge is to find people who don't think they would like it, but would if they gave it a chance.
0: I would put it a little differently, Scott. I think this is what you're saying, but you've reached the edge of organic. Right. 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 Because what I think is really strong about a, a great brand, any great brand, is there are people out there who love it. They just don't know it yet. They're completely... Easy targets—they're willing. They're they're low-hanging fruit. You just have to go get them. You have right. to go, you know, kind of expose the show to them and find creative ways to get to them. And uh, yeah, I think there's a tremendous appetite for this kind of content.
1: Yeah, and it does seem that way, and they do seem to be pretty loyal. I mean, we st- we have a pretty good chunk of people. You never know how many people subscribe, which is one of the many stupid ob- obfuscations right. of metrics in podcasting because they could tell you. Uh, Apple right. could just say, you have this many subscribers, but yep. they don't. And Apple's not the only the only fish in the ocean either. Now there's Spotify and all these other ones. and um, But you can tell how many shows have been downloaded. That's what our metrics are based on and our, our CPMs for ad sales and that sort right. of thing. But the other thing that's happened is the, there's groups that have formed online on Facebook. We have, you know, we had a Facebook page for the show and then we have a Facebook right. private group. And that group, I think, right now has 12 or 13,000 people in it. And that group is its own little like terrarium. I always say it's just like you just put a little water in it and close it up. I mean, we have mods in there. It would be a disaster without right. the mod. And right. one of them being our our right hand person, our producer and head of research, Tess Feifel, who's been with us for a long time. She uh, runs a group of mods in there. Again, they keep politics out and they're very good about the rules, but it's this community that's really rabid. And from that, all these other adjunct groups formed that we're not even part of. They're like unofficial groups, like the astonishing artists, astonishing writers, astonishing. And these are their other, they put up their own Facebook pages and they don't even necessarily talk about the show, but they all met in the Astonishing Legends private Facebook group, which has been infinitely fascinating to me, how that's evolved. And it's fun to go in there, but we're so busy. We don't get in there a lot ourselves. It's just become that that's become its own thing, you know, and then there's the people that follow you on Instagram and Twitter. And I run our Twitter account personally. Yeah. So I'm very interactive there or as interactive as I can be. And the good thing about that is you keep your ear to the ground about what's working, what's not working. What are people complaining about? What, what do they like?
0: That's great to know. Yeah. Do you get a lot of feedback for topics that you did that you would not necessarily have known about?
1: We get a lot of emails, and a lot of times, I guess the audience is diverse and big enough now that a lot of times we'll finish a show and somebody will be, "Oh, I know, I know the guy you're talking about. I, I live across the street, or I went to high school with so and so." Or you get a lot of like after the fact information. Other times we'll be speculating on like when we covered crop circles, we were talking about military helicopters in England, and two different military pilots reached out to us. One even sent us footage of him flying around. Fields. So that's amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really fun to be getting that stuff. We're still not at the point that um, Art Bell was at where, you know, somebody's calling in from a private plane flying over Area 51. <laughs> over
0: Area 51. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then he got shot down like on the radio. Yeah. That, that, if that it so was felt real. like a hoax to me. Yeah, I know. We don't know if it's real. It felt like something the Howard Stern show would do. Yeah. So one of the things you guys did that I think was really brilliant was created something called the arc and i 'd love for you to talk about that
1: sure well the arc is the astonishing research core and uh, basically what happened was pretty early on a lot of people were expressing interest in doing research for us they wanted to essentially make it into a hobby to dig into these topics that we were coming up for so we were trying to figure out a way to do that and manage it and also we have to be careful about the IP obligations there or right. or, or the dangers so My wife has an entertainment lawyer. So I reached out to him and I said, how can we do this? And he drafted this thing called a certificate of authorship. And so what we do is we induct people into this group. They have to sign that, which basically says, whatever I'm working on, it's yours. I'm not going to try to make a claim later for it. Right. And it's a release, like, basically. Yeah, it's a release, exactly, Um, dedicated to this research, or as some people in the group jokingly call it, free search, because nobody's getting paid. <laughs> right. And then, you know, we went out and found a platform, which uh, we use one called River, which is spelled with a, a R-Y-V-E-R, which is like Slack, essentially. It's a yeah. secured, uh, threaded discussion software. And it's just amazing. So it's it's basically almost like a private club for people who are in there trying to dig things up on stuff. And they and people love to get in there and get their hands dirty. So what I wonder is how on earth you did the show without them. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's it is really, really helpful to have them, but sometimes too, we get most of what we need just from a couple of good books. Yeah. And then we yeah. go in there and we get extra details or, or angles that we didn't think about. That's the best thing about the arc is like oh, I didn't even consider this, or I I wasn't thinking about this point of view or that point of view. That's where they're really good. But then on top of that, there's people in there, you know, we have somebody in the Library of Congress, we have a person who works for the Defense Intelligence Agency, we have, I mean, it's crazy. And some of the stuff these people can get to, normal people could not get to, including us. So it's nice. Uh, you
0: know, I think one of the lessons here would be that a brand that has a podcast, you know, say Coca-Cola has a podcast for one of their brands. Yeah. Can they build something like this? Uh, Probably a corporation would have to pay. You know, they have to start paying. Whereas there's just something really, really fascinating about a group of people working for the show for free because they love it. They just love it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I do think brands have that kind of love sometimes from the fanatical sort of uh, users. But um, I wonder if you have any advice for a brand on that.
1: Well, again, I think that part of the reason that folks like to do that, it's the same reason that the show has been a success is the escapism of it and digging. People like digging. They like yeah. doing research. And a lot of folks like doing that in their free time. So I've been personally surprised at how how intense the Astonishing Research Corps has gotten. But I don't know. you know It's a good question. If you were had a brand and you wanted to get them involved in that, the question is, what is the draw? What's in it for the people? You know, with I guess with us, I, I don't even know that with the researchers are necessarily looking for their content. They don't necessarily need to hear it on the show. They right. just love digging about right. topic. That's fascinating.
0: Yeah. So given this explosion of podcasts, would you, if you were starting Astonishing Legends today, what would you do differently?
1: Gosh, I don't know. Like starting a show now would would be significantly more daunting. When we started... I literally found an article that said, it was like a list verse article, I don't even remember what it was, but it was in the early days. And it was like, take these 10 steps to make your show. (laughs) Yeah. And I followed the steps. Yeah. And it was, oh, you know what I said, take these 10 steps to get yourself into the new and noteworthy category on iTunes. That's what it said. Right. And it was a whole article that analyzed how that worked, new and noteworthy. and How you worked the
0: algorithm, basically?
1: Yeah. And it explained that the algorithm was not just on volume, but velocity. Hmm. And so I took that theory and who knows if this is still true. And I don't even feel like the Apple podcast even has a new and noteworthy thing anymore. I mean, they still do featured stuff. And over the years, I feel like I've heard that it's just a couple of guys in a room who are deciding, (laughs) you know, (laughs) which show is being featured on the carousel at the top of the app. But back then I, you know, I read this article and it said, well, when I read that it was about velocity, not just the volume. Yeah. When our show launched, I went on to Facebook and it's funny because I was one of those people that had detested Facebook and I'd gotten off of it and I did the whole thing. I blew up my profile from the inside out, like got rid of everything, deleted, made sure it was all deleted and followed all these steps to get off of it. And then when we went to start the podcast. I was like, Gosh, I sure wish I was had <laughs> all it. my all my marketing and agency friends back in here because I know they would support me. So I made a new profile and refriended everybody. And then when we went to launch the show, I remember I posted right on a thing to all of the people I knew who were people like you and people at agencies right. in New York and in LA. And I was like, look, my show is coming out. We're trying to get some traction. I don't care if you even listen to it, but please subscribe to it. Yeah. And I don't know if they did that, but for whatever reason, within a couple of episodes, we did get onto the new and noteworthy page at iTunes. And then we, you know, it was like three thousand downloads, ten thousand, thirty thousand, yeah. and it just started growing and it just it kept going. Up. Yeah. So,
0: you know, one of one of the things about creating a podcast that I have experienced that, you know, you just don't know when you start something like this, it's a ton of work. Yes. And, you know, there's that sort of truism that everybody thinks they can write a hit song. Everybody thinks they could write a great children's book. I kind of hear and feel like people think anybody could do a podcast. Yes. It's a lot of work. And I think, you know, I think about how much work I put into this. I put a lot of work in. There's a lot of research. There's a lot of, script writing there's a lot of stuff you know yeah. and then there's a lot of pre and post there's a lot of posts getting it out on social all of the assets all the things but what advice do you have for anyone wanting to start one whether whether it's a
1: brand or a person well i mean the first advice is make sure you have a well defined point of view and what's different about your show because there are now literally a couple million people out there and right. a lot of them are trying to do whatever it is that you're already thinking so you you definitely want to have you know, figure out what your angle is and what your voice is. And I would also say something that, you know, I took screenwriting in college because I studied communications and, you know, film and stuff like that. And I took this one really great class from a professor for the class. We were supposed to write a screenplay, you know, and by the end of the class, it would be finished. I remember he said at the beginning of it, whatever topic you pick or the story you pick, you better make sure you love it because no matter what it is, you're going to hate it by the time you finish the script. <laughs> and that's kind of so the true. thing about the podcast. It, like yeah. If you don't have passion for it, if you're doing it just to try to get noticed or just to make money or just whatever, I, I don't think it works because the workload is too hard. And and it's a term you don't hear much anymore, or at least I haven't seen it in a while in the trades and stuff that I follow in podcasting. But they they call it podcast fade, which is when you start the show and oh, I'm excited, I'm going to do this. And some people go a few months, some, you might even go two or three years and then they're just, they literally throw in the towel. They just like, cause I'm not making money. Nobody's listening or not enough people are listening or whatever. And that's why you get all the, all the, the great pacific garbage patch of dead podcasts <laughs> that people have to wade through to find the good shows.
0: And that's why you don't know how many of the 2 million are actually active, right?
1: Exactly. And the odds are that it's only half a million maybe or 3 or 400,000 that are actively, you know, producing material and I do wish that all of the indexes or at least iTunes, I wish they would clear off the shows that haven't had something new posted in a while or move them to another area. Yeah. So that people could know what was actively being produced versus what came and went. Because there's still great shows that have come and gone, you know, like our sure. talk exists in podcast form. Yep. Those, you know, those guys obviously aren't around anymore doing that. So it's great to be able to go find that stuff that as it's archived. But by the same token, there's too much. And yeah, and the, and the Spotify's of the world, it's a little scary. I mean, we're getting a lot of new listeners from Spotify. It's number two for us after Apple, yep. um, Apple being about 60% market share of listeners. It's exactly the same here. Yeah. And so Spotify is working towards that, but they're also definitely looking for ways to monetize other people's content and not do any revenue sharing. I, that's my concern with them. I mean, it's one thing for Joe Rogan, who they said, here's 100 million B exclusive yep. to us. It's another thing when they're running shows like ours and putting their own pre-rolls and post-rolls on them, right. and we don't see a dime of that. So they're using our content to make money. On the other hand, in their mind, they're getting us in front of more people that might not have hurt us because they don't use Apple podcasts or whatever. So I don't know that I think eventually that's going to come to a head. Yeah. But right now, I guess we're kind of protected because we do live read testimonials. Right, right. And they're baked into the show. And you, it's a pain in the butt to go and replace those. You'd have to find them, mark them, and then yeah. you could maybe do a digital insertion of something else. Well, let's hope they don't start asking for markers because they might. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I could see them doing that. And then I could see saying, OK, well, fine. We don't want to be on your platform anymore. Or you're going to have to do some kind of yeah. revenue share with us if you yeah. want to do that. Yeah. And given how they treat musicians, I'm not optimistic that would be a good deal.
0: Well, we're starting to see that the, I think the Netflixization of podcasts where you actually have specific platforms developing content that yeah. they're then pushing. Right. So. The algorithm isn't going to push you. It's going to push their content unless you're going to make them a ton of money.
1: Yeah. And there's a lot of big money in the game now. You know, Viacom, all these scripts, these companies all came along and they're just pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into it because they realized it wasn't a joke, which is what they, I think, thought it was for 10 or 15 years. And it's yeah. more difficult now, I think, to rise up. But I th- I think you could still do it. I mean, it's happening all the time. I yeah. and I'm, yeah. I can't remember her name, but there's some podcaster that she's like the highest paid podcaster working right now. and I think her show is like a a sex talk thing or something. I can't remember what it is, Hmm. but she got like some huge deal, huge. And her show's like a year old because the content is really compelling and she's obviously good at delivering it. Yeah. So that's the thing I would say. The other thing I would say, the biggest thing I would say for anyone starting out is don't overcommit because you have to be reliable and predictable. Your audience needs to know how often they're going to find you, when and where and when to expect, because if they just have no idea when you're coming out, they're not going to come back. So but then you can also make the mistake of saying, well, I'm going to do a one show a week year round. And that's where the mistake is. You're like, that's 52 shows. You that's will have no vacations, you will constantly be working. So you have to and and Forrest and I kind of got ourselves into that thing because we started out as bi-weekly our first year and maybe into the second year. Yeah. And then when we started generating a little income, we we're like, oh, look, we're making money. We need to make more money. Let's add another show per month. And so we did. So we went from 26 shows to 36 shows a year and our show is really research intensive. And we did that, but it was hard. It yeah, was very yeah. hard. Laundry piled up, bills didn't get paid. We never saw <laughs> our families, that kind of yeah. thing. So, and we did it for several years. But once the audience grew to a lot, then in our deal, we do generally do these two year deals for um, our ad sales. We decided when, when this last round came up to renew our contract, we went back to bi weekly and it's been a life saving experience. So, what I guess I'm saying is the lesson that happened for us is that we overcommitted. But by the same token, and it's a cliche, the show must go on. And if people are expecting it, you do it. And here's the other thing. If you start having sponsors, the sponsors, and they've bought slots, it's got to run. It's not, not oh, I'm tired this week. I don't want to do it. I don't feel like it. You can't leave your listeners in the lurch. And you certainly can't leave sponsors in the lurch because they want their money back.
0: I think my, my other piece of advice that I would give anybody is do five episodes before you post one. Yes. Yes. And make sure you want to do it. Make sure you like it. Make sure it's good. Make sure it's working. All of those things, you know. Yes, we started this on Zoom, and it was not great. Didn't really work well. And thank goodness we found ZenCaster, which we, I think I'm doing a commercial for them, aren't I? Uh, but, yeah, uh,
1: no, no. It's a, it's a far better platform. And and the other thing is, the more you do, the better you get at yeah. eliminating filler words and recognizing patterns that you're making that are messing up your. Yeah livery and you get more confident from a discussional standpoint and an interview standpoint. And so it is good to get some stuff done before you come out with your first official one.
0: Well, one last thing that I wanted to talk about because it proves that you're a brand is that you're already creating sub-brands and you've created a new podcast called the Midnight Midnight Library. Yes. Does that live in your brand neighborhood with Astonishing Legends? How did this come about?
1: Yeah, it does. It's funny. Um, It was a listener who had been interactive with us on social media and i really liked the art direction and tone of what she did and then she started you know we do listener segues where when we have spots in the shows we invite listeners to call in or leave a voicemail uh saying hey this is so and so you're listening to astonishing legends and we'll put that on at the end of uh, a couple of commercials and also a great way to involve fans by the way yeah it's great and it's fun to hear and people from all over the world and it's gotten to where they kind of goof off when they do them now or they might plug their own thing which is fine And we put that stuff in there. And this particular woman, her name's Miranda, kept sending stuff in. And I was like, God, her voice is amazing. I was like, I just love her voice. It was very, it evoked for me sort of Elvira radio vibe Mm. or something. Myla Nermi, which Mm -hmm. nobody's going to know who she was, but um, she was the original Elvira back in the day, or Morticia. But I just felt like there was something there that was very compelling. And so we met with her. We were on the road for a little small convention at a university in uh, the Midwest and she came out and I just thought she was a really cool person and she turned out she had a really cool point of view and is a pretty good storyteller. And so we said, Hey, why don't we, let's give this a shot. And I think it's in our wheelhouse, but it is different. It's different enough from us. If you listen to her show, it's shorter. It's still got uh, factual, interesting, macabre information, but then it's bookended with this fictional entertainment that I just love. So it's a very unusual show in that you get historically accurate, mysterious information in the middle. And then the front and the back is about Miranda and her assistant, Mr. Darling. Uh, And they work in this library, the Midnight Library. And there's this whole mythos that she loves developing and all of that. So it's doing very, very well. It's not obviously as, as big as our show, but it's come a long way since we started it And it's continuing to grow and she loves doing it. That's the other thing. It's a passion project for her. And she's now, she's passed um, as a million, million, 240,000, I think, lessons since she started. That's incredible. Yeah. And generally she does seasons that are, you know, twelve, eight, twelve, thirteen 12, 13 episodes or something like that. And, And it's doing really well. And it's a cool brand. I think with that one, it's very much of a slow and steady wins the race. It's a good example of how, even with us talking about it on our show with our larger audience, it's still hard for that new show to get traction.
0: Yeah. Going full circle back to what would you have done today? You did actually. (laughs) You did something a few years ago.
1: Well, the thing about it is we had the, now we have the crutch of being able to lean on our own reach. Right. If you're starting completely from scratch, I don't know. I I guess what I would say is cross promotion is a really good way to get out there. And when you're starting out, if you cross promo with shows that are similar in nature to whatever you're doing, that's great. And then once you get an audience together that's uh, seems to be good, then you cross promo against type on some other show where people might not have thought about it right and the the trick with the cross promotional stuff is to try to go for parody if you cross promo, you let somebody come on or you do a thing where you say, "Hey, you should check out this show it's yeah. really good, and then they do it too, and you have twelve thousand listeners and they have two thousand you you don't have parody it doesn't you're right. you're kind of wasting your time. So that's the trick because then you have to have that awkward conversation about like, well, how many downloads do you have? You might want to say, look, <laughs> right. that's fine, but I want you to run my my promo on your show two or three times so that you're getting the same reach we're getting, you know, yeah. in theory or whatever. And if you have friends, sometimes you have friends in that stuff. That math sure. doesn't matter. Well,
0: there's a lot. Again, there's a lot of crossover, I'm assuming, in sort of the paranormal slash mystery world for you guys yeah. to, to play in. And they yeah. want your audience too. So Right. Yeah, very smart.
1: And it's been pitched to us from um, Audio Boom. who does our ad sales. They said, you know, you guys need to get some ads up on YouTube, on some of these YouTube channels. So, you know, there's a YouTuber, yeah. I, th- I think her name's Graveyard Girl. People just love her. And she's like, she's kind of goth and she's doing all kind of, talking about all kinds of stuff, but she's also doing unboxing and things like that. And her ad rates are, I mean, expensive because she's got a couple million subscribers on YouTube. Yeah. But like, if we put an ad there, it's probably going to get some people. And we've been talking about it. Just a question of rounding up those assets and, and building yeah. a commercial. So awesome. Where can our listeners find you? Where can people find you? Listeners can find us, as you know, they always say, anywhere you get your podcast. But the guys at <laughs> Jupiter Research say that's too vague. You should be yeah. specific. So what I will say is you can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Spotify, iHeartRadio. You can find us on our own webpage at astonishinglegends.com. Each episode has its own uh, page there with a lot of extra information for people who like to really drill down. And uh, you can ask a smart speaker to play us, and most of them will. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah,
0: that's, Maybe that's the sign of success.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it has been an absolute joy to have you on the show. And I really appreciate your your generosity of uh, wisdom and learnings from this, because I know a lot of people that are wanting to do podcasts, and this is very helpful.
1: Oh, well, good. I'm glad to help. I think uh, the more the merrier. I'm not put off by the expanding uh, size of the pod universe. I, like I said, I do wish they would take the ones that aren't actively producing yeah. and maybe put them in a different category. But other than that, I think everyone should if they've got an idea and they feel passionate about it, they should go for it.
0: Well, we'll put a link to the show in the show notes. Okay, great. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks, Scott. It's great talking to you, David. This has been another episode of Brands in Action. Many thanks to our guest, Scott Philbrook. Today's show has been brought to you by Pony Source Brewing. The beer that asks the question, are you a beer can or a beer can't? Pony Source Brewing, drink about it. If you're digging the show, please give us a review and a like. It really does make a difference. Production help by Nathan Nichols, editing by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell, executive production by Alexa Tesoriero, and music by Medium Heat. All other help from your friendly neighborhood Baldwin Ann.